Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 6th of March 2022, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Jesus the Davidic Messiah, Jesus Christ the Son of David. Well, things turning out very differently to what we expected. That is part of life, isn't it? When we look back on our lives, particularly when we've reached a certain age, Perhaps we'll remember having certain assumptions, certain plans about how things were going to work out in our lives, only for those lives to work out very differently. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Sometimes a really weird mixture of the two. And where does God fit in with this? Well, that's where that old joke comes in. I wonder whether you've heard it before. How do you make God laugh? Answer, tell him your plans. Glad I got a laugh for that. If that's true for us, then it was true in spades for the Jewish people. And particularly for their assumptions about how the promises that God made made to David were going to be fulfilled. Over the last couple of months, as Tim has said, we've looked at the story of King David in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel mainly, and 1 Samuel, under the title of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we've seen how David's story was a real mixture of things that were good, things that were bad, and some things that were downright terrible. And as we followed the story of David, we reflected on how God was working sometimes very, very mysteriously through all of this. Not just through the good stuff, but actually through the bad and the ugly stuff as well. But the significance of King David didn't end with his death. And that's because of the amazing promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most important chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. You see, the previous king of Israel, Saul, had been rejected when he disobeyed God, and his kingdom had been torn away from him. But it was a different matter with David, because God made David an unconditional promise that no matter what happened, David's dynasty would be eternal. It would always continue. David would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. And when we looked at the life of King David, We saw more than enough to realize how crucial that grace of God was, that undeserved love of God was, because of the amount that was bad, indeed ugly, within David's life. But after the time of David, a lot of that mystery was forgotten. The David that the people of Israel remembered, particularly once their nation had gone into decline and they were apt to look back to this golden age, The David they remember was the David who defeated Goliath. The David who conquered Jerusalem and made it the place of God's presence. The David associated with many of the Psalms and supremely the David to whom God had made those most amazing promises that seemed to guarantee Israel's future. People clung on to those promises when everything appeared to be disintegrating. And that's why we have another account of David in the Old Testament called the Book of Chronicles. contains other stuff as well. And Chronicles is basically a rewrite of the Book of Samuel and Kings, but with pretty much all of the bad stuff about David missing. 
So that whole episode with David and Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, that's left out of Chronicles, as is the link between the other bad stuff that David did and its consequences in the history of Israel. Now, Chronicles wasn't written, I believe, to replace the book of Samuel. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been preserved side by side. It's written to supplement them by presenting an idealized portrait of David that pointed to the future and pointed to God's ultimate intention in fulfilling those promises that God made to David. That's why David, I believe, is idealized in Chronicles, not to try and whitewash him, but to say, this is what God has in mind. And we see something very similar in the prophets, those rather strange figures that popped up in Israel's history, and they generally came to show God's people what they were doing wrong and how God's judgment would come upon them as a result. But particularly once those disasters occurred, the prophets also spoke messages of hope, and those messages of hope very often included the fulfilment of God's promises about David. So here's one of the most famous examples. When you come to carols by candlelight or other carol services, you often hear this reading read, don't you? For unto us, the old versions say, a child is born, to us a son is given, he will reign on David's throne, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. And as time went on, this becomes the basis of Israel's hope. Their hope for a Messiah who would come and rescue them. Now, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word. And in Greek, the word Messiah is Christ. You can see now why that's so important about Jesus. And if we translate it into English, it's basically anointed one. David was anointed, wasn't he, by the prophet Samuel. And that was to show God's special appointment of him. And in later times, when the people of Israel were being horribly oppressed by a series of huge superpowers, and they were nothing other than a tiny oppressed minority, the people of Israel cherished this hope that God would send this Messiah to fulfill his promises to David and rescue them. A great big superpower oppressing a smaller state. That has a certain amount of resonance with us at the moment, doesn't it? But these hopes in a Messiah that Israel had were basically focused on two specific things. Two specific things that most Jews expected the Messiah to do when he arrived. Firstly, the Messiah was expected to win a great victory, a great victory over Israel's pagan oppressors. And secondly, the Messiah was expected to re-establish God's presence by rebuilding or restoring the temple. And when we look at history from around this time, it's amazing how many would-be messiahs, both before and after Jesus, sought to present themselves as fulfilling these promises. So around about a couple of hundred years before Jesus, there was a man called Judas Maccabeus. And he won a great victory over the oppressive pagan Greeks, and then he entered Jerusalem on a war horse to cleanse the temple from what the pagan Greeks had done to it. And after Jesus, around about 30 years after Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, there was Simon Bar-Giora, and then later, in around 130 AD, there was Simon Bar-Kokhba, who tried to do much the same, this time 
against the Romans. And even bad King Herod, who we have in the Christmas story, don't we? Even wicked King Herod tried to present himself in this way. That's why Herod spent a fortune massively rebuilding the temple. Why did he do that? It was to stake his claim to be God's Messiah. Even wicked King Herod wanted to present himself in that way, to present himself as the anointed king of Israel, the one in whom God will fulfill those long-awaited promises to David. So that's the background, a bit of history. But what about Jesus? This series is deliberately following on from the last one. So we've got similar backgrounds, graphics done by Nathan, and this series is called Jesus Christ, the Son of David. But you'll notice some of the similarity in the artwork. That's deliberate to make the connection. How does Jesus fit with all of that stuff that I've just been covering? Well, the New Testament is insistent that he does. That's the reason the New Testament begins with that passage that I read just a little while ago. That long passage, that list of difficult names. And the very first sentence of the New Testament, let alone Matthew's Gospel, the whole of the New Testament is introduced by these words. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And both this and all of those names that follow are a major statement. They're a major statement about Jesus being the Messiah from David's line. Incidentally, that was something that Herod and those other messiahs could never claim. They might try and pretend they were the Messiah, but they weren't from David's line. That's why when the wise men came to Jerusalem looking for the one born king of the Jews, and that phrase is really important, Herod was so fearful and angry. That's why it was so important for Jesus to be born in David's town of Bethlehem. So Jesus comes, the New Testament writers insist, to be the inheritor of all those promises God made to David. And it's so appropriate that he comes from the line of David, that he's born in the town of David. But to go back to where we started this morning, Jesus turned out to be the son of David in a way that was totally different from people's assumptions. Jesus turned out to be the Messiah, the son of David, in a way that turned people's expectations totally upside down for at least three reasons. First of all, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus came to bring a different sort of victory. You see, the victory that most Jews were expecting from the Davidic Messiah was the fairly straightforward defeat of their enemies. But we've already seen in the story of David that life isn't as simple as good is versus bad is, is it? When David defeats Goliath, we might think David the goody, Goliath the baddie, but as the story of David continues, we see that it's way too simplistic to have simply goodies and baddies as the template for understanding David's story, let alone the whole of life. And part of what Jesus came to reveal was that the real victory that was needed wasn't just against the Romans, wasn't just against those Jews who were being corrupt and fiddling people like tax collectors. What Jesus came to reveal, and it's really crucial for us to understand, is that the real victory that was needed was over the power of evil itself. The power of evil that isn't just located within particularly bad people, 
the power of evil that sadly is capable of running through every single one of us. That's where Jesus' exorcisms came in. And when we read the New Testament stories, they can be, these can be rather off-putting. We can think, oh, these are rather weird, rather odd stories. They're really important, those stories where Jesus drives out evil spirits, because what they show is that Jesus came to defeat the power of evil rather than just particular forms of it in particular people or empires. Jesus came to drive out and defeat the power of evil. And that's what made the character of the victory that Jesus came to bring totally different from what people expected as well. Because Jesus came to defeat evil, the way that that victory needed to be brought about was very different from what people imagined. You see, most people, when they were looking to the Davidic Messiah to sort things out, they expected things to look something like this. They expected a great military victory. That was the way you got rid of the bad stuff. You attacked it and fought it and defeated it. But instead, the victory that Jesus came to bring, it looked like the precise opposite of this. This is what the victory that Jesus came to bring looked like. And the Bible passages that describe the crucifixion of Jesus, they're full of irony. Because those people watching the crucifixion of Jesus on that very first Good Friday, they thought it was a huge joke that the supposed Messiah, the supposed King of Israel, was being crucified. That showed that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And it's a shame that that picture, which is otherwise quite effective, doesn't show further up the notice that was put above Jesus when he was crucified, which said in three languages, the king of the Jews. And it was meant to be ironic. It was meant to be there in mockery, but it was actually stating the truth far more powerfully than those who put it up realized. The gospel writers, when they write the stories of Jesus' crucifixion, the stories that we particularly focus on around Easter time, they present that as the supreme act of sacrificial love that brought the victory that God had always promised, that brought the victory through the Davidic Messiah that was being accomplished to a much deeper degree than anyone ever imagined. Because what was happening at that point was that evil in its worst form was coming face to face with love and being defeated by it. That's why the resurrection is so important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ that happens three days later is the proof that the victory had been won. But the resurrection itself isn't the victory. The death of Jesus is. That's the point where evil did its worst and it was defeated. And Jesus came to do that as the Davidic Messiah. The last thing that anyone had ever expected, all of the assumptions about what that would look like turned totally upside down but Jesus nonetheless coming as the Davidic Messiah to bring a victory, but a different sort of victory to what people had expected. Secondly, Jesus brings a different sort of temple. People expected the Messiah to come, win a great victory, and then restore or re-establish the temple as the place of God's presence. David had played a crucial role in establishing the site for the temple. He wasn't actually allowed to build the temple. One of the few critical things that Chronicles says about him is he had too much blood on his hands significantly to do that. 
But David had established the site for the temple. Uh, his son Solomon built it, the place of God's presence. When David actually tried to build the temple himself, God made it clear that he himself was to establish a house for David, a dynasty that would particularly include his presence. People, as we saw earlier, expected the Messiah to either completely rebuild or restore the temple. But what they got in Jesus was, in a sense, the same thing, but in a very different form. Because what they got in Jesus was someone who bought God's presence. That's what the temple was intended to do. Jesus bought God's presence in his very person. So that's why Jesus' healings are so important, and Jesus' other miracles. What they were demonstrating was that God's presence had come in a person. It wasn't coming to be located within a building that could only be in one place. It was coming in a person. Jesus came to bring God's presence, the thing the Jews had always wanted to be restored. Jesus came to bring it in human form. Firstly, Jesus brought it in himself, and then once his ascension took place and the coming of the Holy Spirit, God's presence came in the people who belonged to Jesus, the church. That's why both Jesus and the church are described in the Bible as God's temple. And that links to a third way in which Jesus defied expectations, which is by establishing a different sort of people. One of the most shocking things about the story of David that we looked at was the way he treated non-Israelites. Supremely, of course, Uriah the Hittite. It's very significant that Uriah, this faithful follower of David, was a Hittite. He wasn't an ethnic Jew. And that's partly why David was prepared to have sex with his wife and then have Uriah murdered. He didn't really matter because he wasn't a Jew. And by the time that Jesus came, no one really expected Israel's Messiah to be interested in anyone really other than Jews and then particularly pure ones. But Jesus turns that expectation, that assumption totally on his head, doesn't he? He comes particularly for those who are on the margins, particularly for those who are outside the boundaries of what was acceptable, tax collectors, prostitutes, and also pagan foreigners as well. And we'll see that particularly in the talks over the next couple of weeks. And when Jesus died on that cross, at the hands of the Gentile Romans who were crucifying him, the blood guilt on the Davidic line, through David's treatment hundreds of years before of Uriah the Hittite, was finally atoned for. And the result was immediate and spectacular. Because what we see is at the point that Jesus died, the Roman centurion, this is why it's important we have someone in a Roman centurion costume at that Easter praise uh, coming up on the 3rd of April. We're told that at the point that Jesus died, there's an earthquake, the temple in the, cur in the, temple, in the, uh, the temple curtain is ripped uh, in two. But we're also told that a Roman centurion, probably the person in charge of the execution of Jesus, declared truly this man was the Son of God. See, when David's kingdom started to fall apart and suffer all of those rebellions, one of the things that the rebels said was, what share do we have in David? And by the time of Jesus, as I say, most people assume that Messiah, the Messiah, would only be for some, not for everyone. 
but pretty much the biggest overthrow of expectations and assumptions that came with Jesus was that Jesus indeed came for everyone, for anyone and everyone who could share in the Messiah, the son of David. And that's why it's so important in that genealogy that I read earlier that we see the names of those Gentile women that occur. I tried to emphasize this when I read it. We see in that genealogy not just a list of male names, Jewish rulers, but also we see Tamar, we see Rahab, we see Ruth, and I wonder whether you noticed it, we supremely see the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And I guess from all this, there's a more general and a more specific challenge for us this morning. The general challenge for all of us at the start of this period of Lent that began, of course, on Wednesday is whether we're prepared to have our expectations and our assumptions overthrown by Jesus. Or if we've been a Christian for a while, whether we're still prepared to have our expectations and our assumptions overthrown by Jesus. Because the reason why Jesus ended up being crucified was because God's people weren't prepared to accept the challenge to their assumptions that he was making. That's why the Jewish leaders crucified Jesus. They just couldn't engage with this overturning of their expectations. But being a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is all about continuing to have our assumptions challenged and overthrown by Jesus. That's what should be happening each week as we come to church to worship God and when we listen to sermons. Sometimes we'll hear something that hits us straight between the eyes and it will make us change our thinking, but most of the time it's more subtle than that. What's meant to happen is that we're simply shaped by week by week hearing more of God's word. The idea is that we're more and more changed, we're more and more shaped and changed in our assumptions about what the world is and how we should live within it. So it's still a really good challenge for Christians to ask themselves, when was the last time that the Bible, that God's word, changed our mind about something and then changed our actions? That's one of the most challenging questions that we can ask, particularly if, like me, we've been a Christian for most of our lives. When was the last time that the Bible, that God's word, changed our mind about something and then changed our actions? Because that's what it's there for. It's there to challenge us, to overturn our assumptions, our expectations. Lent is a really good opportunity for starting to put that right if we feel that we've drifted a bit. And to ask God to open our hearts and our minds afresh to his word. To really bring ourselves before God and be open to being changed by God the assumptions, the expectations that we can pick up from the culture that we live in need to be challenged and subverted and overthrown. That's the general challenge, but the more specific one this morning is whether we're prepared to believe and act on that truth about that different kind of victory that Jesus came to bring. Now this is a particularly appropriate message as we consider how to respond to events in the Ukraine particularly in a nuclear age, we're acutely aware that we need to find ways of defeating evil other than through force, don't we? 
That doesn't mean that in a fallen world, force and restraint aren't sometimes appropriate. I believe that sometimes they are. But because of Jesus, our principal weapon in the fight against evil has to be sacrificial love. That's where the appeal that we heard about from Helen Cook comes in. And that's why our response to it this morning and in the ongoing weeks is important. We need to understand sacrificial love as the primary way that we are called to respond to evil in this world. We need also to refer back to something I said earlier as well, the humility that recognises that the evil that this love needs to overthrow is something actually that runs through all of us, rather than simply being located in Vladimir Putin or particular people who act in ways that we see as terrible. Many of us feel powerless at the moment, and of course the major decisions are in the hands of our politicians. But particularly because of the victory over evil and the presence of God within us that Jesus brought, we can all do two things. We can pray to God, knowing that because Jesus has brought his presence, he hears us, and we can show sacrificial and inclusive love. We can try to show love for Ukrainians, love for Russians, love for everyone different from us. And by doing this, we'll be presenting the powerful, transforming gospel truth that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, came not to just beat up a load of people who were doing particularly bad things. Jesus came for everyone. And we'll be demonstrating that we really do believe in the power of God's sacrificial love in Jesus, the son of David, to bring in a manner that continues to challenge every assumption and expectation that people have that amazing victory over evil that he had always promised. People said back in the time of King David, when they were disgruntled and felt left out, we have no share in David. And perhaps they were right. Perhaps in many ways they were marginalised and excluded. But that is never, ever true of the Son of David, of Jesus Christ. Live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Live in the love of Jesus. And that transforming love can work in our lives. And it can be a further part of implementing that assumption, challenging, expectation, defying victory over evil that Jesus came to bring.